Our latest CBS News poll shows that only about 10% of Americans describe themselves as knowing a lot of specific things that are in the reconciliation package and that the majority don't know anything at all. So do you think you need to do a better job at messaging and going forward, how do you sell this if ultimately you have to... Well, I think down? you all could do a better job of selling it, to be very frank with you, because every time I come here, I go through the list. you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. We are not the government. The government is not us. This is the O Files. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dino Files. Oh, recording on this Tuesday, the 19th of October. Boy, howdy. That clip, uh, Pelosi doing a uh, press conference wherein she tells the press it's their job to sell the reconciliation, uh, reconciliation package. This is the, uh, the bill that includes the $600 uh, transfer, the, the the ability for them to track transfers over $600. Yeah. Apparently it's the press's job to sell that, not hers. I always find that fascinating. I'm going to have an interesting article, I think... We'll see, but I uh, I do want to go to the news. Let's go to the news. So the other day, uh, Colin Powell. Colin Powell passed the other day. This is something that the other day, yesterday. Uh, he had blood cancer that caused him to have a weakened immune system. He was vaccinated, but he died uh, with COVID. He died uh, of COVID, technically, even though... The immune system failure was effectively what killed him. Uh, it's kind of like, I'm, I mean, it's, it's comparable to like an AIDS thing, where it's like AIDS doesn't kill you. It's what you catch while you have AIDS that kills you. Um, same situation here. Let's read from CommonDreams.org. This was linked from Antiwar.com. Colin Powell, who helped George W. Bush lie the nation into the Iraq war, dead at 84. Colin pa uh, this, I'm sorry, written uh, by John Keeley. Keeley? Not sure. Uh, published on the 18th of October. Colin Powell, the former U.S. Secretary of State who helped President George W. Bush, under whom he served, to sell the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq uh, to the United Nations and the American people, has died at the age of 84. According to the New York Times, quote, he died of complications with COVID-19. His family said in a statement he was fully vaccinated and was treated at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Uh, in 2003, Powell, a retired four-star U.S. Army general who also served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs before becoming the nation's top diplomat under Bush, 
made the now infamous presentation to the UN Security Council in which he claimed that the Iraqi government of President Saddam Hussein was hiding a secret chemical weapons program from the international community and supporting international terrorists following the 9-11 attacks of 2001. Powell later claimed that the testimony he gave in 2003 was a, quote, great intelligence failure, but critics, including his chief of staff at the time, Lawrence Wilkerson, said the speech was significant both for its dishonesty and that Powell's, quote, gravitas was a crucial, quote, part of the two-year-long effort by the Bush administration to get Americans on the war wagon. That effort, Wilkerson wrote in 2018, quote, led to a war of choice with Iraq, one that resulted in catastrophic losses for the region and the United States-led coalition, and that destabilized the entire Middle East. Uh, in a 2018 column detailing what the former Secretary of State knew and was saying privately at the time, he was selling the Iraq invasion to the U.S. public. Uh, I'm sorry, at the same time he was selling the Iraq invasion to the U.S. public, The Intercept's John Schwartz wrote that, quote, Powell's loyalty to Bush extended to being willing to deceive the world, the United Nations, Americans, and the coalition troops about to be sent to kill and die in Iraq. Uh, he's never been held accountable for his actions, and it's extremely unlikely he ever will be. There, there's something else interesting that's quoted um, in that Intercept article uh, from Wilkerson, where Powell told the UN Security Council, <clears throat> he said uh, that there's, you know, he was absolutely certain that Iraq had WMDs, chemical weapons, and uh, privately, though, he was saying, boy, what, you know, what, what happens if we put half a million troops in Iraq and find nothing? So he wasn't absolutely certain that was that was an out and out lie. He may have suspected it personally, but I mean that's not what he said. So that I do recommend that intercept article. In fact, I think I'll probably link it in the show notes. Uh, I'm not going to cover it, but I that intercept article from 2018 is very very good. All about what Colin Powell was doing at that time. Uh, let's go to published on the 14th, written by Matt Welch at Reason. Democrats want to soak the rich by snooping on the poor. Nancy Pelosi, Elizabeth Warren, and company insist that the IRS needs to know about $600 bank accounts. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat from California, uh, snapped when asked Tuesday if the proposal to dramatically increase surveillance capabilities of the IRS would remain in the trillion-dollar social spending bill currently being negotiated among Democrats on Capitol Hill. Yes, 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 the Speaker said. Then she waved aside the questioner's accurate comment that banks have reported customer concerns about the idea that the IRS would scrutinize accounts with inflows and outflows as low as $200, or, I'm sorry, $600. Quote, with all due respect, the plural of anecdote is not data, Pelosi said. The plural of anecdote is data. <laughs> that's, that's the reverse of how that phrase goes. Um, uh, Pelosi said disrespectfully, quote, yes, there are concerns that some people have, but if people are breaking the law and not paying their taxes, one way to track them is through the banking measure. I think 600, well, that's a negotiation that will go on as to what the amount is, but yes. Okay, so more of if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Which, in fact, I saw somebody say on Twitter today, somebody verified, I thought thinking people gave up on that line a long time ago. I thought that, that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear thing went away uh, after the Snowden leaks. That's, that's kind of when everybody stopped saying it, right? Apparently it's making a comeback. Uh, back to the story. In the face of pushback from worried constituents and mobilized industry groups, commercial banks donated around $20 million to each major party's congressional races in 2020. Democrats have been talking about raising the reporting threshold from $600 to $10,000. $10,000 is still not a lot of money. 
But even that higher level gives the lie to the recently repeated progressive talking point that President Joe Biden's construction of a startlingly invasive financial surveillance state or, quote, American Families Plan Tax Compliance Agenda, if you prefer, will magically avoid inconveniencing all the lower-income people suddenly eligible to have their cash flow scrutinized by a money-hungry IRS. Here's the thing, too. This is something that's not being fucking discussed. Who is it that works for cash under the table? It's not the fucking rich that work for cash under the table. Everybody I've ever known that worked for cash under the table were poor people. It's all working class people. I've worked for cash under the table. Waitresses that don't, uh, that don't report all their tips, right? That's the kind of people that are hurt by this. Rich people, everything's on the books. Anyway. And yet that, uh, that is how this surveillance is being sold on the left. Uh, quote, strengthening information reporting as well as providing protected and sustained IRS funding would ensure that we focus enforcement on the biggest fish, Senator Elizabeth Warren claimed to the New York Times, presumably with a straight face. Quote, this is about making sure the top 1% can't, can't evade $160 billion per year in taxes, the Treasury Department spokesperson. I can't, I can't handle this anymore. This, uh, 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 that's pretty much all that the story talks about. I, I'm, I'm, I don't get it. I don't get it. Are people stupid enough to fall for this? It's like all this inflation stuff. There was just an op-ed that was running the New York Times today. Again, I'm not going to cover it. But there was an op-ed that was running the New York Times today talking about uh, don't complain about inflation and empty shelves. Lower your expectations. Like, eat shit. <laughs> the fuck you talking about? Lower my expectations. No, I refuse. Now what? Let's move on to a funny story from Heavy. I'll link that, by the way. I'll link that op-ed. From Heavy. This is, boy, how D. I saw this, this went up, this, this went off on Twitter, and th this dude just got dragged. And I'm, I love it. I love it. From Heavy. The interesting part here is relatively short. Missouri governor says HTML source code, quote, decoded by, quote, hacker reporter. Governor Mike Parson of Missouri announced that an individual stole social security numbers after they, quote, decoded the HTML source code. However, a local media publication is disputing this claim and saying the individual was their own reporter who warned Parsons' administration about the security flaw and let them fix it before reporting about it. The word, quote, SSNs began trending on Twitter after Parsons' announcement, as people pointed out that if the social security numbers were in the source code, it meant they were easily viewable by hitting F12. Uh, in a series of tweets following a press conference, Parson announced that an individual decoded the HTML source code and took the social security numbers of three teachers. He said the Cole County Prosecutor and Highway Patrol's Digital Forensic Unit would investigate the, quote, serious matter. He referred to the individual as a, quote, hacker. <laughs> it's like that shitty Hollywood version of hacking where they just show somebody hit F12 and, like, input something in the page. Ugh. This is the, uh, this is the tweet thread. It's hilarious. Okay, from the, this is the tweet thread. Through a multi-step process, an individual took the records of at least three educators, decoded the HTML source code, and viewed the SSN of those specific educators. We notified the Cole County Prosecutor and the Highway Patrol's Digital Forensic Unit will investigate. Upon receiving this notice, DESE immediately contacted the Missouri Office of Administration, ITSD, who programs and maintains the web application to remove public access to the portal and update the code. This matter is serious. The state is <laughs> the state is committing to bring to justice anyone who hacked our system <laughs> and anyone who aided or encouraged them to do so in accordance with what Missouri law allows and requires. A hacker is someone who gains unauthorized access to information or content. That's not quite. This individual did not have permission to do what they did. 
They had no authorization to convert and decode the code. <laughs> Under Missouri law, a person commits the offense of tampering with computer data if he or she knowingly and without authorization accesses, takes, and examines personal information without permission. This data was not freely available. It had to be converted and decoded. No, it fucking didn't. The state does not take this matter lightly, and we are working to strengthen our security to prevent this incident from happening again. The state is owning its part, and we are addressing areas in which we need to do better than we have done before. Oh, yeah, like not having fucking social security numbers in your HTML and your goddamn website. Fucking moron. Uh, we will not rest until we clearly understand the intentions of this individual and why they were targeting Missouri teachers. They weren't targeting anything. Somebody was pen testing you. Somebody at a newspaper was pen testing you. They found out that you fucked up, they told you about it, let you fix it, and then reported on it. That's how this goes. People make tens of thousands of dollars doing just that. They're called bug bounties. You failed a pen test. Offer a mea culpa and go away. Christ. <sighs> the rest of the story is about how Twitter reacted to it, which was hilarious, by the way. But it's not something I want to talk about. But like all of these stories, it will be linked. In the show notes. Um, let's go to the... Okay, so... I want to do... Okay. I'm, I'm trying to think about how to contextualize this next story. So, you've probably heard about the shadow docket, right? From the, uh, the... The people talk about the Supreme Court, they talk about the shadow docket. Most of them don't really know quite what it is. But in any case, it's... To, 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 to boil it down to a very, very basic level, it's the part... It's the... Hmm, generally... It's where the Supreme Court decides whether or not they're going to hear a case. They decide whether or not they're going to uphold an injunction or, you know, whatever. But the, these, generally, that's what people are referring to when they talk about the shadow docket. There's also the emergency docket. And that is sort of the other side of that where they'll decide cases faster than they would otherwise. Um, I bring that up because. From SCOTUS blog, Biden administration asked justices to block enforcement of Texas abortion law. This is more SB8 news, but this case is moving so quickly. I'm, 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 I'm actually kind of surprised. I thought once, once those uh, suits were filed uh, against that doctor who wrote the op-ed, once those suits were filed, I expected like, okay, so we're not going to hear about this for another few months, and then... It'll hit, you know, they'll go to court, and then they'll appeal, and it'll be a couple of years, and then we'll have a ruling on SB8. That's how this would normally go. But it turns out, no. It turns out, let's just read from the article, the Biden administration asked the Supreme, asked the Supreme this is, by the way, the Biden administration, when they say the Biden administration here, this is just the DOJ. And, and I think I covered this story. The DOJ uh, got an injunction against SB8. They sued for an injunction against SB8. Uh, in contravention of the uh, of the idea that there has to be an equitable cause of action for the DOJ to do anything, um, but anyway, they did they did it anyway. And so when 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 this piece refers to the Biden administration, they're actually referring to the to the DOJ. The Biden administration asked the Supreme Court on Monday to do what the justices declined to do last month when they, when asked by a group of Texas abortion providers, block the enforcement of, Texas, of the Texas law that imposes a near-total ban on abortions performed after the sixth week of, sixth week of pregnancy. 
In an emergency request by Acting Solicitor General Brian Fletcher, the Department of Justice told the court that by making, quote, abortion effectively unavailable after six weeks, quote, Texas has in short successfully nullified the Supreme Court's, quote, decisions within its borders. The new request in U.S. v. Texas asked the justice to reinstate a decision of the federal district judge who declared the law unconstitutional and temporarily blocked it earlier this month. That was the injunction. An appeals court quickly issued a stay of the district judge's decision. That was the Fifth Circuit. They, in, they stayed the injunction. Um, it's, it's, it's just kicking injunctions and stays back and forth. I, I love it. It's not confusing at all. An appeals court quickly issued a stay of the judge's decision, prompting the federal government to seek emergency relief at the Supreme Court. Rather than handle the request on the so-called shadow docket, Fletcher also suggested in his filing that the justice could treat the request as a petition for review, schedule a full briefing and oral argument, and resolve the merits of the case without waiting for the litigation to conclude in the lower courts. Uh, the Texas law known as SB8, one of several early-stage abortion bans that Republican legislators have enacted around the country as part of the effort to, to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in which the Supreme Court held the Constitution protects the right to have an abortion before a fetus can survive outside the, outside the womb, yada, 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 yada. You already know the background of SB8 if you've been listening to me or following me on Twitter or any of that. Um, oh, wow. I'm, I, I, something just broke my brain for a moment. There's a Texas in July is literally in this paragraph. I'm sorry. It, that threw me. Texas in July is a band. They're a great band. Abortion providers went to federal court in Texas in July, where they argued, among other things, that the law violates their patient's constitutional right to end pregnancy before viability. The proceedings quickly made their way to the Supreme Court, which on September 1st, shortly after the law had already, been gone, into, had already gone into effect, denied the provider's request to block enforcement of the law. That was the first, that was the shadow docket block. Um, da -da 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 -da. The Biden administration went to federal court in Texas in September, seeking to block the enforcement of the ban. In an emergency motion seeking a preliminary injunction filed on September 15th, the Department of Justice emphasized that the only way abortion providers can challenge the law constitutionally is by violating it, potentially subjecting themselves to substantial penalties. Therefore, the government concluded the law is an effective blockade of constitutional rights and an effort to circumvent the supremacy of the U.S. Constitution itself. The law also subverts, quote, uh, quote subverts the mechanisms Congress designed to, uh, designed to guarantee that plaintiffs can block unconstitutional laws before they are enforced. The government added it interferes with, among other things, the federal government's obligations to provide access to abortions, uh, for example, for federal inmates and some members of the military. Here's the interesting part, the very last paragraph here. The Biden administration's request went to Justice Samuel Alito, who fields emergency requests from the Fifth Circuit. Alito acted quickly, ordering the state to file its response by noon on Thursday, October 21, and with the order later on Monday directing a response to the previous case, setting up the possibility that the court could act on both SBA cases at the same time. Now, when they say both SBA cases, they're also referring to, um, to, uh, WWHV Texas. Let's move on to, that's all, that's all of the context that you need for that. Let's go over to, a uh, piece on the Volk conspiracy published on the 18th. Today, the Department of Justice filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court in United States v. Texas, just, uh, Circuit Justice Alito ordered a response due on Thursday, uh, 1021 at noon. Also today, the Supreme Court entered an order in Whole Women's Health v. Jackson, uh, quote, petitioner's motion to expedite consideration of the petition for a writ of certiorari before judgment is granted, and respondents are directed to file a response to the petition on or before noon on Thursday. In short, Texas will have to file two important briefs by Thursday. Why the urgency? Whole Women's motion to expedite has been pending uh, since September 23rd. 
Indeed, Lyle Dennison complained that the court wasn't acting promptly enough, but today the court grants WWH's motion to expedite shortly after DOJ's emergency application was granted. This, this piece here, I'm sorry, I never even read the headline. Five thoughts on the timing of U.S. v. Texas and WWH v. Uh, v. Texas. This is v. Texas. I think it's v. Jackson. Okay, so here, here I'm going to boil this down a little bit, actually, and go to the more interesting piece. Uh, fourth and fifth. Fourth and fifth. Not fifth. Uh, this is the more interesting part of this. I've long thought that the court would hear both U.S. v. Texas and WWH v. Texas this term on the rocket docket rather than the shadow docket. The court could, in theory, super expedite proceedings, so U.S. slash WWH are both heard in December along with Dobbs. That approach would allow the justice to decide all the cases at the same conference, or the court can hear Dobbs in December and U.S. slash WWH in January or February. All three cases can be decided by the end of June, but SB8 will remain in effect for the interim. Uh, the fifth, uh, fifth thing, uh, it's possible five or six justices vote to vacate the Fifth Circuit's stay in U.S. v. Texas, thus reimposing the district court's injunction. Does that mean there are five votes to affirm the district court? The district court? Historically, when the Roberts Court grants a stay, it reverses the lower court. Also, justices who grant a stay may, quote, lock themselves in on the final disposition. This anchoring effect is often used to criticize the shadow docket. However, this case may be different. Under current abortion jurisprudence, SB 8 is unconstitutional in many regards. But if the court overrules or modifies Roe and Casey, then SB 8 becomes constitutional in many other regards. Thus, the justice could conclude that putting SB 8 on hold pending Dobbs may make sense. Okay, uh, to backtrack a little bit, you've probably already heard me talk about Dobbs. I, I did, uh, that was episode uh, 113, actually. I think it was just the last episode. Maybe. I don't know. Check the show notes. Um, yeah, Dobbs. The, Dobbs is the big abortion case this term. Dobbs is the, is the case that's pretty much going to decide the fate of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, and I say that very specifically because I do not think the court's going to overturn Roe. I'm hard-lined on this. I, I, I truly do not think that they are that stupid. Um, because it would be stupid. It would be stupid to overturn Roe. I think they might overturn Casey. In fact, I think they will overturn Casey. But that's just my presumption. I'm, I'm sure that they are not stupid enough to try and overturn Roe. In any case, if they decide Dobbs and then decide the SB8 cases in light of Dobbs, because they will have just changed the law, um, it, it, it does make more sense. It does make more sense. SB8 moving quickly. And I said this, look, I, I said this a while back. I said it doesn't make any sense for the Supreme Court to screw around with SB8 when they have Dobbs. They can do whatever they want with abortion and then just knock down SB8. And they're going to knock down SB8. SB8 cannot stand. The, 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 the legal proposition proposed by SB8, this idea that, that you can sue somebody for exercising a right, and I said this before, absolute bullshit, fucking insane. So SB8 cannot stand. And frankly, if they, if they uphold Roe and overturn Casey, SB8's... SB8's SB8 cannot be legal unless they completely overturn Roe, and they're not going to overturn Roe. So SB8 is getting knocked down, but it makes more sense to knock it down in light of Dobbs, like after Dobbs, is what I'm saying. Let's continue also from the Volk Conspiracy, uh, published on the 19th, written by Eugene Volk. I pulled this because I haven't talked really. I, I talked on, I don't think it was the last episode. It might have been the episode before that. I, I talked about how... This, um, the student at Yale Law was holding an event, 
Uh, he's a FedSoc member. He was doing this event. He he said it was uh, you know we're cutting, like they were they were uh, like christening at the 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 Yale Law Trap House or something like that. It, it was it was I've talked about it before, but everybody went nuts. Everybody went insane. Everybody hates this kid. Yale forced him to apologize, and the uh, the. Student organizations now are really trying to burn this kid down. Uh, in fact, I can't remember. It, it might have been... It was either the Frederick Douglass Society or Balsa, I think, at Yale, who said that his FedSoc membership itself was violence. It's fucking insane. Anyway, written by Eugene Volk. Yale Law's bullying, coercive diversity leaders. Prominent liberal law professor Andrew Kopelman, Northwestern, weighs in in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, quote, Trent Colbert, a Yale Law student who belongs to the Native American Law Students Association, he's part Cherokee, and the Conservative Federalist Society has invited classmates to an event co-hosted by both groups. Quote, we'll be christening our very own soon-to-be world-renowned Na- uh, NALSA Trap House, Native American, that's by the way, NALSA, N-A-L-S-A, uh, Native American Law Students Association, by throwing a Constitution Day bash in collaboration with FedSoc. Uh, the invitation promised, quote, Popeye's chicken, basic bitch American themed snacks like apple pie, and hard and soft drinks. It is unsurprising that Colbert did not know that the, Colbert, I think is how it should be pronounced, did not know all the connotations of Trap House, a term which originally referred to crack houses in poor neighborhoods, has, according to Urban Dictionary, quote, since been abused by high school students who like to pretend they're cool by drinking their mom's beer together and saying they're part of a trap house. <laughs> it's one of a huge variety of slang terms from marginalized urban culture that have entered the mainstream, where many people acquire it, ignorant of its etymology. The invitation was almost instantly screenshotted and shared to an offline forum for law students. The president of the Black Law Students Association reportedly wrote in the forum, uh, quote, I guess celebrating whiteness wasn't enough. Y'all had to upgrade to cosplay slash blackface. She also objected to the mixer's affiliation with the Federalist Society, which she said, quote, has historically supported anti-black rhetoric. The school's Office of Student Affairs received nine discrimination and harassment complaints. When Colbert hadn't apologized by the same evening after being encouraged to apologize by Yale administrators, uh, administrators Eddick and Cosgrove emailed the entire second-year class about the incident. And, quote, invitation was recently circulated containing pejorative and racist language. Where? Uh, the email read, quote, We condemn this in the strongest possible terms. And, quote, are working on addressing this. Here, mediation has ceased. The law school has taken it upon itself to declare who was right and who was wrong. Colbert was publicly branded as a racist before his peers. Quote, they sent that out, he told me, while they were on the phone uh, with me, telling me there was no judgment. In a brief follow-up meeting on September 17th, which Colbert also recorded, Eddick says, quote, you're a law student and there's a bar you have to take, so we think it's really important you give a 360, to give you a 360 view. This is more menacing than anything that was said the previous day. It suggests that this episode might be brought up at the character and fitness inquiry of the bar admission of a bar admission. This is a fucking that is you know how much debt this kid's taken on to go to law school at Yale and then some administrators saying we might just say you don't get to be a lawyer. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh oh. Back to the thing. People come to the university with, a radically, diff- with radically different narratives about themselves and the world. Uh, that generates some mighty intense disagreements. Members of a university need to work together peacefully when they find one another's deepest convictions wrong or offensive. It can be valuable to have someone in the administration that students can complain to whose job it is to detect and de-escalate conflict. Uh, it's obviously difficult for a student to approach a professor to complain about racial insensitivity. 
What that administrator must be weary of doing is adopting one side's narrative and imposing it on everyone. An explanation of why the, quote, trap house email offended some people was helpful. An official statement pronouncing it racist was destructive. It was the semi-official implication that the Federalist Society is oppressive, uh, etc., etc. Um, calling out FedSoc is an interesting thing. It's a cool thing to do now if you want to show that you're like a good prog liberal. Um, calling out FedSoc is, is just one of those things that... Uh, what's, what's funny about it, <clears throat> at least what I've seen... And look, I'm in Texas, right? So I'm not, I'm not in the deepest of prog milieus. But I am at a law school, which is <laughs> quite a prog milieu. Um, but w what I've seen mostly is that people shit all down FedSoc's throat, and then the FedSoc people don't give a fuck. Like, they, they truly they just don't care. They'll just, they just brush it off, because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. But in a situation like this, where you have an administrator telling a student, maybe we just say you don't get to be a lawyer. Fucking excuse me? What? That is absolutely insane. Uh, oh, from SCOTUS blog. This is interesting. So we, talk ab we talked about, on a recent episode, uh, the Zabeda case, um, where the state is trying to use the state secrets doctrine to block testimony from CIA contractors uh, who tortured Zabeda, allegedly. Um, they're trying to block that testimony uh, for, because state secrets, like, they, they, there's no explanation that I can think of. Um, they're, they're, I think their explanation at oral argument was we can't betray the trust of our international partners, of our partner agencies, and it's like, nah, but fuck you. Um, there was an interesting thing that happened during that oral argument, which has kind of precipitated this. Um, at, at one point, I believe it was Chief Justice Roberts asked, can he testify? Can Zubeda just testify? Why do you need some why do you need a third party to testify? Why can't Zubeda testify? And uh, Zubeda's lawyer says, well, he's being held incommunicado at Guantanamo. To which, by the way, the state attorney said, uh, he's not being held incommunicado, he's being held just like everybody else at Guantanamo, which means he's being held incommunicado. Um just because everybody at Guantanamo is incommunicado, it doesn't matter. Um where was I? Oh, the, uh, the position of the state is that they can't let these people testify because of state secrets, et cetera, et cetera. So they were asked by justice, by the justices, why can't Zubeda testify? Uh, they said he's being held incommunicado at Guantanamo. They said, why, why, why is he still there? It's been, uh, what, 20 years? And Zubeda's lawyer said, well, there's been a habeas petition in Washington for 14 years. Can you imagine a habeas petition sitting for 14 years without being addressed? And then Robert's like, I think it was Robert's, trying to turn it around on him. Like, well, you haven't done anything with that? And he's like, we've done all we can. There's a habeas petition. It's, there's nothing we can do. Um, this was a whole thing. I, the, I, think, I, could, I think if I listened very closely, I could hear the state attorney take a massive shit in his pants. As soon as the uh, as soon as the justice started saying, "Why can't Zabeda himself testify? This is insane." Um, and so that precipitated this, published on the seventeenth, the SCOTUS blog. Detainee can testify about his treatment at a CIA black site. Government tells justices. The Biden administration told the Supreme. Biden administration means in this case, I believe, CIA and DOJ. 
uh, told the Supreme Court on Friday that a Palestinian man who's been in U.S. custody for nearly 20 years could provide testimony for the use in a Polish criminal investigation into the man's torture at a CIA black site in that country. However, Acting Solicitor General Brian Fletcher added any testimony by Zayn Hussein, also known as Abu Zubaydah, would be subjected to a national security review, and it would not resolve the dispute over whether testimony by two CIA contractors who supervise the CIA's torture program is protected by state secrets privilege. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Fletcher submitted the letter to the court in response to a request from the justices during the argument. Justice Stephen Breyer initially broached the possibility of having Zubaydah, I'm sorry, Breyer, uh, who was mistakenly believed to be a high-level member of Al-Qaeda when he was captured in Pakistan in 2002 testify about his treatment by the way scott horton did a great interview about zabeda very recently um and it is a it is a really good interview he talks about the he recalls how the bush administration used zabeda as justification for gitmo and all this other shit that was going on and the torture program etc and saying like he was the number three guy in al-qaeda he was fucking nobody he's a fucking peon um Okay, yada yada yada. Who was mistakenly believed to be a high-level member of Al-Qaeda when he was captured in Pakistan in 2002 testify about his treatment, which was so severe it resulted in per uh, permanent brain damage and the loss of his left eye. Abu Zubaydah's lawyer, David Klein, told Breyer that his clients being held in communicado at Guantanamo Bay, Justice Gorsh returned to the topic more directly a few minutes later, asking Fletcher whether the government could make Abu Zubaydah available to testify. Justice Sotomayor seconded the request and Fletcher promised to respond. Okay, so that was, that it was, none of it was Roberts. I think I mistook uh, Gorsh for Roberts during oral argument. I think that's what I was thinking of. Um, where he said, what, you haven't done anything with that habeas petition? And it's like, it's a habeas petition sitting there. What, we can't do anything. Um, moving on. I'm only going to read the beginning of this one because it's a very, it's a relatively long piece published on the 18th. Uh... Supreme Court deals a major blow to qualified immunity reform. In two opinions issued Monday, the court gave qualified immunity to several police officers accused of violating the Constitution. The Supreme Court on Monday issued two opinions awarding qualified immunity to police officers accused of brutality, overturning lower court decisions that came to the opposite conclusion. The court has thus prohibited the alleged victims from seeking accountability in civil court. The doctrine of qualified immunity shields government actors from civil suits if the ways in which they are said to have misbehaved and the exact circumstances surrounding the events in question have not yet been spelled out as unconstitutional in a prior court ruling. It can be a low bar. Previous recipients of qualified immunity include two cops who allegedly stole $225,000 while executing a search warrant, more than 24 cops who damaged an innocent man's house during a drug raid on the wrong residence, cops who shot children, cops who used force against subdued suspects, and those who had surrendered, not because their conduct was necessarily permissible, but because no court precedent had yet been set to... Uh, to I'm sorry, no court precedent had yet said the precise components of each case violated the Constitution. Monday's decision adds a few more to that list, including a cop in Union City, California, based on a based, I'm sorry, accused of injuring a man after pressing his left knee into the suspect's back, as well as two officers in Talika, uh, Talikwa, uh, Oklahoma, who shot and killed a man wielding a hammer. Whether or not those officers deserve to pay damages to their accusers is not a question I have the answer to, but it's a question that should be answered by a jury of their peers who are constitutionally tasked with taking on that duty and not a few judges sitting on high. The Supreme Court have agreed with the lower court's decisions and decided to withhold qualified immunity. Neither plaintiff would have necessarily been awarded damages. They would simply have been legally permitted to argue their case before a jury, which they now have not the privilege of doing. It goes into some details about the cases. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of the sentences. In the first case, Officer Daniel uh, Rivas Villegas responded to a 911 call from a 12-year-old who was afraid that a Roman... That Roman... Uh, 
Cortes Luna, it looks like. Her mother's ex-boyfriend would hurt her and her family. When Rivas Viegas apprehended Cortes Luna on the ground, he allegedly injured him by digging his knee into his back for eight seconds. According to the U.S. Court of Appeals for Ninth Circuit, it was already established by law that an officer violates the Fourth Amendment when he acts in a way, uh, in such a way with, quote, suspects who were lying face down on the ground and were not resisting either physically or verbally. On, uh, on whose back the defendant officer leaned with a knee, causing allegedly significant injury. In the second case, officers Josh Gerdner, Chase Reed, and Brandon Vick responded to an emergency call when Dominic Rawlis's ex-wife said he was drunk and would not leave the house. Upon arriving at the scene, the officers cornered Rawlis in the garage, at which point he grabbed a hammer and appeared like he might throw it at one of the officers. Gerdner and Vick shot and killed Rawlis. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the 10th Circuit concluded that, although the shooting may have itself been reasonable, a jury could find the cops created the situation when they cornered Rawls in the garage, and that such a move violated previously established law. Um, yeah, qualified immunity, man. There was, uh, there have been a couple of bills introduced, actually, that would have gotten rid of qualified immunity. I think Justin Amash had one, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been Rand Paul. Um... But what that does is it amends Section 1983 to basically say that this does, there's no immunity from 1983. There's none. What are you doing? Stop it. Um, the judges have applied this idea of sovereign immunity to qualified immunity in a, uh, uh, and created qualified immunity in that way. It is, um, it's a travesty of justice. <laughs> and it should not be allowed to stand, but it is because the state backs the state. Usually. Published on the 15th. Judge, police can't blame a bystander for a cop killing another cop. An, I an Idaho judge has dismissed a manslaughter charge against a woman after she was accused of killing a police officer who was killed by another police officer. In May of last year, Bonneville County Sheriff's Deputy Wyatt Mazur died after his colleague, Sergeant Randy Flegel, <sighs> accidentally hit him with his police cruiser. In response, the state decided someone needed to pay and they zeroed in on Jenna Holm, the woman lying on the ground nearby. It is uncontested that Holm did not kill Mazer, having just been tased repeatedly. The officers were trying to help Holm navigate what may have been a mental health crisis in which Holm had been wielding a machete. For their part, her attorneys contend she kept the machete for protection in a rural area where her car had broken down. Though she did not harm any of the officers, Deputy Benjamin Botcher, another cop on the scene, had to tase her for around a full minute in order to subdue her. After she fell to the ground, Mazer crossed the street to handcuff her, at which point Flagel drove into the deputy as he arrived in his car. Quote, Holmes' unlawful conduct therefore constitutes by statute that Holmes committed involuntary manslaughter when Deputy Mazur was struck and killed while trying to detain Holmes and make safe a situation Holmes was actively creating, wrote Idaho State Police Detective Mike Cox. Mike Cox, wow. In a probate cause affidavit. Bullshit. Uh, an internal police investigation found that the officers had failed to follow proper safety protocol in securing the scene and on the road that evening, uh, concluding that Mazur neglected to activate his rear emergency lights and that he had stepped in front of a moving vehicle, and that Botcher gave wrong directions, left off his emergency lights, and didn't use a flashlight as needed. The state sought to withhold those findings from Holmes' defense, although they ultimately failed and had to release them in June. Why, why would you withhold? Oh my god. But Judge Dan Watkins Jr. of Idaho's 7th Judicial District struck down the case not because of the evidence in Holmes' favor, but because the allegations were unconstitutional according to Idaho legal precedent. The framework under which such charges can be brought uh, is fraught as is, known as a felony murder rule. It allows the state to prosecute people for homicides they didn't technically commit if the crime occurred during the commission of a uh, tangential felony. In practical terms, that's how Ohio was able to charge a teenage girl with murder after a cop shot her boyfriend, who was committing a robbery she allegedly assisted with. Holmes was charged with manslaughter during the commission of, quote, an unlawful act. But as I wrote last month, trying to blame Holm for Major's untimely death didn't make sense, even in the context of the already controversial 
controversial doctrine. Idaho adopts what's known as the agency theory in which a state may only wrap up bystanders in homicide plots if the killing was carried out by one of the bystanders' accomplices. That was set in stone with State of Idaho v. Pena, in which Idaho's highest court determined Juan Carlos Pena could not be guilty of felony murder because the actual killer had no relation to Pena's crimes that evening. Oh, God. But it was kicked. The, the judge said, you, you, don't get, you don't get to do this. This is stupid. This is the stupidest fucking thing on the planet. Um, it kind of blows me away that they would do this, actually. Because generally, I mean, it's a losing, it's a loser. It's a loser of a case. I don't even know why they brought it. I mean, honestly, like, it, I, I, I would see that as a case where a jury might nullify. Like, that's, that would be a real risk in that case. And, and, and if that's a risk in your case, why would you even bring the case? Ugh. Last story. Wall Street Journal. I know, I know, Wall Street Journal, mainstream bullshit outlet, but this is fascinating. Federal judges or their brokers traded the stocks of litigants during cases. Dozens of judges have reported share purchases and sales made while they presided in suits involving those companies, a Wall Street Journal investigation found. This published on the 15th. Written by Coulter Jones, Joe Palazzo, and James V. Grimaldi. Mary Geiger Lewis acquired, acquired Walmart Inc. stock. Charles Norrell Sr. reported nearly a dozen buys and sells of Pfizer shares. Charles Segursa, also, uh, Seru, had two accounts that bought Medtronic PLC stock. None of that would be a problem except for this. All of them are federal judges, and at the time of the trades, all were hearing cases involving those companies. The Wall Street Journal discovered this trading in a broad investigation that identified 131 federal judges who heard hundreds of cases between 2010 and 2018 involving companies in which they were a they or a family member owned stock in violation of federal law and judicial ethics rules. Judges Lewis, Norgal, and Saragusa uh, were among 61 judges who didn't just own stocks of their companies but were litigants in their courtrooms. Accounts held by the judges or their families traded shares as suits were progressing. The journal's investigation found nearly half the judges reported more than one trade while the case was in progress. Federal law and ethics rules say judges must recuse themselves if they, their spouse, or any minor children own even a single share of a company that's a plaintiff or defendant in a case before them. Some judges, when contacted by the journal, said they were unaware that brokers or advisors who managed to account for them traded shares of the companies during the cases. But there's no exception for holdings in managed accounts, and federal law requires judges to inform themselves about the financial interests and make a reasonable effort to do the same regarding their spouse or any minor children. Other judges said they failed to update their, quote, recusal list, tallies that judges keep of parties they shouldn't have in their courtrooms in the middle of hearing cases. Federal courts use software to identify such parties, but the software can't spot stocks judges buy unless the, ju unless the judges update their conflict lists. Trading during a case, quote, can happen only if the judge is recklessly indifferent to the conflict of interest rules in the state and the canons of, and, I'm sorry, in the statute and the canons of ethics, said Arthur Hellman, an ethics specialist and law professor at the University of Pittsburgh who was briefed on the journal's fi findings. While Judge Walter Rice was hearing a case involving International Paper Co., his financial disclosure form shows he sold between 15000 and 50000 of the company's stock in December 2015. The sale earned a profit between 15000 and 50000 and uh, the form shows. Judge Rice said that later that month he gave his remaining shares to five charities. International Paper doesn't appear on his later disclosure forms. Yada, 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 yada. So, this is a longer piece. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there you go. You got judges trading stocks based upon uh, who's in their courtroom and the way the case is going. Fascinating. Fascinating. And illegal. And unethical. But fascinating. 
in in kind of this vein, I had forgotten about this, but if you if you follow uh, on Twitter, if you follow if you follow Nancy Pelosi Portfolio Tracker on Twitter, um, Nancy Pelosi Portfolio Tracker claims that uh, I'm trying to scroll through. Nancy Pelosi Portfolio Tracker on Twitter claims. Uh, I just received a cease and desist order from a lawyer representing someone high up in political office. I will not name names. I will also not cease or desist. <laughs> um, which I find hilarious. Take that off the goddamn internet. Um, but like, this is something that are we are we surprised at all that judges are out here trading stocks on companies over whose litigate over whose yeah litigation they are presiding? Absolutely insane. But unsurprising. That's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for rating and reviewing on uh, whatever platform you listen on. Uh, I want to thank you all so much for being here and for going to Alternative Internet Radio, ARED.io. Uh, following me on Twitter, Dino Files, no, uh, no spaces, no dashes, the E A N O F I L E S. Uh, Roguefile, roguefile.com. I hope to be writing something in the near future, but, uh, you know, want in one hand. And as I said before, I will be uh, rebuilding a lot of the support systems and things like that, but I I don't really... uh, That's going to take, like I said before, it'll take time. And uh, frankly, I want to do the show for free for a little bit anyway, just because uh, as as grateful as I am that people kept supporting on that hiatus, like I said on the last show, it allowed me to pay for the hosting, it allowed me to pay for the website, it allowed me to keep things up and going so I didn't have to close any of my accounts and, and things like that. If you are still supporting on the Subscribestar, I would ask that you uh, close that because I can't I can't close it myself if there are still supporters there. So double check that. Uh, that would be wonderful, and uh, I'll be rebuilding that stuff in the relatively near future, but not. Don't expect it tomorrow. Um, the Discord still exists. I, w- I want to be active there a little bit. There's a link to the Discord there on uh, the Roguefile, Roguefile.com, and uh, I think that's it. Thank you all so much. Uh, tell a friend if you think they might be interested in the show. Um, Tell a friend if you think the show is terrible and you hate that friend and you want to torture them. Do both of those things. See you next week.